I'm uh, station manager Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. 3-605.10.20.22.24.26.50.70.71.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.75.
hello, 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 and Dan Aykroyd responds with hello, hello, hellos. However, he never makes eye contact. He just keeps walking forward. He never takes his eyes off the end of the hallway while he's walking. And I think this shows at the beginning of the movie that Dan Aykroyd feels he is better than all these people. They know him and just as a common courtesy, say hello to them. That's a big thrill in their day because he said hello to them. What he doesn't know is all these people are saying hello. And he thinks all these people are saying hello to him because they like him and respect him. But they're just saying it because he's their boss and he, they don't want to get in trouble. Then we cut to Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, who play the Duke brothers in this movie. And every time they would say, these are the Duke brothers, I would just kid, a, you know, uh, uh, Duke's a hat. the Duke boys. Okay, that was a horrible Roscoe P. Coltrane. But we're introduced to Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici. They're a couple of, they're the, the bigwigs of this firm where Dan Aykroyd works they work at he works at the duke company and we get the same thing with them as they're walking out the door good morning mr duke good morning mr duke good morning mr duke good morning mr duke and these people are all programmed to say hello to the duke brothers once again the dukes respond without making eye contact because they are better than them in their eyes they get into this limo and they're driving to work and it's it's really it's a high class limo for the time it has rotary phones in the car, which I think is comical. And they have some sort of first computer that has the green numbers and, and letters on it. That's in the car. You'll see this in the movie. Besides the butler that we see at the beginning of the movie, all the other help in this movie are mainly black men. The chauffeurs, the doormen, the butlers. They're all black men in these roles. Because John Landis, John Landis who directs this movie, I He's trying to set up at the beginning that you know, there is a line where he's, he's just trying to make a point here where the rich white men have all the money and the, the, the black men are just doing what they have to do to survive. He, he wants to set that up, and it's going to get explained further as the movie goes on. And the Duke brothers are arguing whether they should sell this stock or not. Pork bellies. They should sell pork bellies or not. And, and one says they should, and one says they, you know, they shouldn't. And they go, well, let's listen to, you know, Dan Aykroyd. He told them that something good is going to happen to pork bellies, and one doubts him, and one says, let's just listen to him. And the pork bellies go through the roof, and they make an extra three hundred thousand dollars on a, the pork belly stock. They admit that, you know, Dan Aykroyd did a good job. While they're driving into work, though, one of the brothers is reading this scientific magazine about heredity versus environment. And when I first read that, when I first heard that, I immediately thought of a Three Stooges short where it was these two guys arguing that is it environment that makes a man or is it hereditary? Is it heredity that makes a man? And this movie is basically based on a Three Stooges short, which I think is fantastic. They pull up in front of their building. This is when we first get a look at Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy is pretending to be a homeless guy with no legs and he's blind. And he just sort of attacks Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici's legs. This is Eddie Murphy's introduction into the film. It's very, very funny. I don't know how much of it is scripted and how much of it was Eddie. It seemed very... I think it was probably just outlined and they let Eddie do what Eddie does because Eddie was very, very uh, funny in that scene. 
Uh, but it also it also seemed very non-scripted. It seemed kind of improv that Eddie Murphy was just, just rolling with it, and it worked very, very well. We see the Duke brothers. They're talking once again about heredity and environment. And once again, a black butler comes up and serves them their milk. And the Duke brothers go, I bet you forgot. I bet you think we forgot about your Christmas bonus. And he hands the guy five bucks. And the guy makes a snarky comment, and he leaves. We cut back to Dan Aykroyd, who is at his desk. He's very, very confident as he's walking through the club. There's, a, there's actually a club at the bottom of this of this business. So the top floors are business floors, and at the bottom there's uh, sort of this gentleman's club. I don't believe any women work there except for as secretaries. And once again, that's another... It's like this this movie is basically saying that at that time everything was controlled by rich white men. I think that was something that was bothering John Landis and he just wanted to you know, he wanted to he wanted to poke poke the monster, so to speak. Dan Aykroyd comes down, he meets Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, they congratulate him on on the good job that he did. Dan Aykroyd is also running their firm. He has to give them pay they have to sign the paychecks for all the employees and there's a certain paycheck by a guy named Mr. Beeks and it's $50,000 and Dan Aykroyd says I can't find uh, Mr. Beeks on our payroll and both the brothers get kind of nervous and they say don't worry he's working on something top secret don't worry about it and you can see in Dan Aykroyd's eyes that he knows something is wrong but he doesn't want to rock the boat so he just lets it go and at this point, find out that Dan Aykroyd is engaged to the Duke's brother's grandniece, Penelope. They are waiting for Dan Aykroyd to marry their grandniece. They want him to make an honest woman out of her, which I think is, was sort of a sly joke on John Landis's part, or whoever wrote this. They want, they want him to make an honest woman out of her when those two, when the Duke brothers are... Uh, two of the most dishonest people in the entire world. And I'm going to set this up about Dan Aykroyd's character. Dan Aykroyd's character, he is pompous, he is arrogant, he is also confident, and he is honest. He hasn't stole anything in his life. He plays things by the book. He plays by the rules. He's made his money honestly. That's a characteristic we need to know about Dan Aykroyd's character at this point. Once again, they talk about environment versus hereditary so this is going to be a running thing until until it finally happens then we cut back to eddie murphy and eddie murphy is out in the park still pretending to be blind and have no legs the cops interrogate him because there's been reports of of con men pretending to be crippled and blind while eddie murphy is pretending to be blind he's obviously doing his stevie wonder impression that he picked up from saturday night live that is totally obvious at this point the cops you know, strip him of his glasses and make him stand up and Eddie Murphy's walking away and he's he's talking to the cops and he's doing his Eddie Murphy thing and as he's walking away he sees another cop. He panics and he turns around and at that moment Dan Aykroyd is walking out of the building and Eddie Murphy bumps into Dan Aykroyd and Dan Aykroyd drops his briefcase and, and Eddie Murphy picks it up and tries to give it back to him but Dan Aykroyd starts yelling Stop thief! Stop thief! Take my briefcase! Don't kill me! I'm not trying to kill you. I just want to give you back your briefcase. The cops come running in, and they chase Eddie Murphy back into the building, and they start running around the building. At the end, they, they catch Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I just This guy ran into me, and I was just trying to give him back his briefcase. 
And the point being that these are all rich white men and Eddie Murphy is playing a poor black man. They don't believe Eddie Murphy at all. They take him out in handcuffs. And they all congratulate Dan Aykroyd for basically doing nothing. The funny line in here is as Eddie Murphy is being escorted out, he goes, is there a lawyer in the house? And all these rich old white men just put a hand over their, a hand over their face and look down to the ground. The Duke brothers see this happening, start questioning Eddie Murphy. You came from a broken home. You've had arrest records, haven't you? Eddie Murphy's like, I don't want to talk to these guys, you know. And, and they take Eddie Murphy out of the building. And Ralph Bellamy goes up to Don Amici and says, there's obviously something wrong with that man. And Don Amici says, of course there's something wrong with him. He's a Negro. Cringeworthy line. I'm sure it wasn't cringeworthy back in 1983, but it's very cringeworthy now. Of course there's something wrong with him. He's a Negro. Ooh. I'm going to say this, as I said in my other review of Twilight Zone, the, uh, the part that was directed by John Landis, the N-word was used, but it was, it was used to set up characters. It wasn't used frivolously. It was used to set up characters, and we're going to get that in this movie as well. So even though it's cringeworthy, I feel it's also necessary to present what kind of people the Duke brothers are. So this is where Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici hatch a plan. They're going to not only prove that they're going to take Eddie Murphy off the street, put him in Dan Aykroyd's position, and see if he can do just as good a job as Dan Aykroyd. They are also going to destroy Dan Aykroyd. And they say losing his job is not enough. What they're going to do is they're going to make him lose his, his friends, his job, his money. They are going to totally destroy Dan Aykroyd to see if Dan Aykroyd will turn to crime to support himself. We cut to dinner with Dan Aykroyd and his fiance. The dinner goes on, they're about to have sex, and while they're having, they're talking business while they're undressing to have sex. So it's very, very business-like. It's sort of a comparison. To me, we're going to be introduced to Jamie Lee Curtis later, who's a hooker, uh, but here we have what I think is a reference to a high-class hooker or a call girl. She's just marrying Dan Aykroyd because... He works for the Dukes, he has money, he has status. So she's a, she's a different kind of prostitute. We cut to Eddie Murphy in jail. and Eddie Murphy is uh, just talking jailhouse smack. Talking about how he knows karate, how he's rich, how he can't get in touch with his hoes, how the phone in his limo is out. It's a very, very funny scene once again. And once again, I don't know how much of it was scripted and how much of it was Eddie. However it is, it works I've seen this. I've seen a jailhouse scene in tons and tons of movies. This is this is one of the best ones I've seen. It's all because of Eddie Murphy. These two big guys are about to attack him when a cop says he's made bail. He gets let out, and he is picked up by Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, the Duke brothers. They paid his bail, and now they're taking him to the home that was once occupied by Dan Aykroyd. They take it, so they get him into the limo, they start talking to him, they say, we want to give you a job, we want to pay you $80,000 a year, here's some booze, here's some cigars. While this is happening, Eddie Murphy pops his head up to the front, talks to the chauffeur, he asks the chauffeur, are these guys for real? And the chauffeur nods his head, and then he says, are these guys a couple of faggots? And... That word was very, very prominent in the 80s. That word was very, very prominent with Eddie Murphy. He was synonymous with that word. And I thought when I first watched it, 
I thought, well, he did that whole bit about it in his special Delirious, which everybody, I think everybody in the world has seen Delirious. And he had that big bit about, about that word. And I thought, well, maybe they're cashing in on that for this movie. But I looked it up. This movie came out before the special did. And once again, I don't know if it was written in the script or if that's something Eddie Murphy used because obviously he was at ease using that word at that time in his life. But the chauffeur not, you know, shakes his head no and they end up taking him back home. And Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici once again explain that this house is yours. Everything in this house is yours. Eddie Murphy doesn't believe it. He starts stealing stuff. He starts putting stuff in his pockets. And they keep saying, this house is yours. You're just stealing from yourself. Don't take this. It's really an odd, because this happens very, very quickly. And I don't know if I was a man in Eddie Murphy's position, if I would stick around for that. It just seemed, if that came out of the blue, where two guys offered me a house and everything was mine and a bunch of money, I would have to think some, some sort of string is attached but he sticks around and he finally starts to believe that this is all his that his house is his that that all the you know all the money that they're offering him is his cut to duke's uh financial building and we see them looking out the window at a gentleman and there's a gentleman standing there in a trench coat dan Aykroyd walks past him duke boys nod their head and that gentleman in the hat nods his head he follows dan Aykroyd into the bottom part of the club he bumps into Dan Aykroyd, and he slips something into his pocket. Then they're all gathered. The guy who slipped something into his pocket, his name is Beeks, and he's played by Paul Gleason. His two most famous roles was the principal in The Breakfast Club and the, the cop that shows up in Die Hard. So Paul Gleason, who's playing Beeks, is the head of security, and he says there's been a theft. Somebody, somebody stole uh, three $50 bills, and we marked those bills with a red X. And he tells everybody to reach in their pockets, pull it out, and lo and behold, the money is in Dan Aykroyd's pocket. Immediately, Dan Aykroyd is thrown out. The, the security grab him and throw him out. Dan Aykroyd is basically making the same speech that Eddie Murphy made when he was getting arrested. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. This is unjust. Now we're in the police station, and we see Frank Oz. Frank Oz, famous for the voice of Miss Piggy and Yoda. But we see Frank Oz, and Paul Gleason pulls Frank Oz over, and we see him whisper something in Frank Oz's ear. Dan Aykroyd is being booked by Frank Oz, and this scene is very, very reminiscent of the scene in the Blues Brothers. There's that scene in the Blues Brothers where, where Jake is being released from jail, and that's Frank Oz, who was the cop in that movie. And he goes, one hat, black. One pair of sunglasses, black. One prophylactic, soiled. In this movie, it's almost the same thing, except it's the opposite. He is taking down what is in Dan Aykroyd's possession. One wallet, one watch. And we find, while he's doing that, we find PCP. There is a bag of PCP in Dan Aykroyd's coat. Evidently, Paul Gleason, Beeks, told Frank Oz to plant that in Dan Aykroyd's suit because they made him undress. Planted drugs on Dan Aykroyd. We cut to Eddie Murphy walking into a bar, evidently a bar that he has frequented in the past. 
and he starts throwing money around because he's finally convinced, well, this is my house, this is my car, this is my chauffeur, this is my money. And he starts throwing money around. And the two thugs from the jail come up to him and say, well, where's your limo? And he, they look outside, and there's his limo. <laughs> That's something in life that I think everybody would like to do once. You just say that, you know what, I have a limo, and you're able to tell those people and show them a limo. That's a, that's a great F.U. moment in anybody's life. And while he's at the bar, he just tells, hey, everybody, back to my place for a party. In this scene, Eddie Murphy, this is only a second movie. His first movie was, of course, 48 Hours. And while they were shooting this film, 48 Hours hadn't come out yet. So John Landis really didn't know who Eddie Murphy was at the time. And Eddie Murphy is just very, very... It, once again, it's sort of like that. There's a bar scene in 48 Hours. It's sort of like that. In, the, in 48 Hours, Eddie Murphy was pretending to be a cop to get information. In this, he's newly rich, so he's showing that off. Once again, Eddie Murphy is just very, 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 very talented, very, very funny, very, very naturally funny. It, it, just, it doesn't look like he's trying at all, and it's just, it's just flowing out of his mouth. That was a horrible term. We cut to all those people in his house. All these people are taking advantage of the house. They're putting their cigarettes out on his carpet, and Eddie Murphy's going around like, what are you doing doing that? You're not going to throw up in my house? Haven't you ever heard of a coaster? Where are the rest of these people? And the butler says where some of them went upstairs. And Eddie Murphy goes upstairs, and he sees this naked woman, and he sees this naked woman in his bed. And she's like, I've been waiting for you. And Eddie Murphy's like, just get out. And that, that tells us something about Eddie Murphy right there. That he has respect for himself. That he could have had this woman, no questions asked, but he knows that she's just there because of his money and not because of him. And that doesn't set right with him. And he doesn't take advantage of the situation. And he tells her to go. And that's what he does with everybody. He tells everybody, out of the house. Everybody get out. And he turns to the butler and he says, all those people were just taking advantage of me and treating my house, you know, like a garbage dump. Eddie Murphy knows to respect not only himself, but others. And he wants the same respect for himself. I thought that was a nice character twist because we see him as somebody has poor and somebody out there begging, but he also has, he has self-respect and he knows right from wrong. And he's probably, he's doing what he has to do to survive. But once he gets the means to support himself, he tries to do the right thing all the time. We cut to the jail cell where Dan Aykroyd has been bailed out and we see his face and he has been beaten. He has been, he has been savagely beaten in jail. And now we see the first appearance of Jamie Lee Curtis as a prostitute. She's walking, uh, she's walking through the police station and once again, Paul Gleason beaks comes up to her and whispers something into her ear. Then we cut to Dan Aykroyd's fiance, who is sitting. Evidently, Dan Aykroyd's fiance has bailed him out. And he walks out, and he's wearing all these rags. She's like, what are you wearing? Why do you smell? You're embarrassing me. She's more concerned about how she looks than about how he is. Which goes back to her being a prostitute not not in the literal sense of the world word but figuratively a prostitute she's only with him when he's at his height she doesn't want to be with him 
when he's at his lowest, which he is now, and he needs his help. So she's just going on and on about how he's embarrassing her. And Dan Aykroyd, it looks like he's convinced her that he's innocent and that he's being framed. And then when that happens, Jamie Lee Curtis just runs into the picture, kisses him on the lips, and says, Hell, hey, baby, I need a fix. So she pretends to be a junkie going after Dan Aykroyd for a hit. This is just me. I don't know if that was tough for Dan Aykroyd because... We know this came out in 83, so just the year before, John Belushi died of a, of a drug overdose. And I don't know if it was a tough scene for him to shoot, pretending to be a drug dealer, even though he wasn't. But this, just to have that scenario, I wonder, I'm just wondering if that was playing in the back of his head. I don't know if it was or not. But I know him and John were very, very close, so it might have been. Anyway, the fiancé is done with him, slaps him in the face, and leaves, and Dan Aykroyd confronts Jamie Lee Curtis, like, why would you do that to me? Jamie Lee Curtis says, well, it was your friend. He said it would be a joke. And we look, and Paul Gleason is gone. We cut to a cab. So Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd is in a cab. Dan Aykroyd is going home. He doesn't know what's happening to him. He still thinks he has his home. He still thinks he has his job. still thinks he has his money. He tries to go home, and the butler won't let him in and Dan Aykroyd is confused and the butler says if you don't go away sir the butler pretends that he doesn't know him and the butler says if you don't go away sir I'm going to call the cops and it's very very subtle but it's very very poignant when he says that the look in the butler's eyes he has a tinge of regret just a tinge it very very something uh, if you don't if you don't watch for it you'll miss it he does a very, very good job and does that split second conveying that he might feel a little bad about doing this to Dan Aykroyd because the butler was taking in, taken in by the Duke brothers. And so the butler knew the plan about wanting to destroy Dan Aykroyd. They needed the butler on their side to, to help pull this off. And now let's take a break with a word from one of our sponsors. Are you worried about the Red Menace? What will happen if they attack? How will you protect your family? Well, fear no more, paranoid mom. You can protect your whole family at home with Dr. Carmichael's Lead, White, and Blue House Paint. Dr. Carmichael's Lead, White, and Blue House Paint. As any good American knows, lead is the number one enemy of radioactive fallout. And with Dr. Carmichael's Lead, White, and Blue House Paint, you can encase your whole house in a protective lead bubble. Sleep well knowing that your house will deflect any radioactive fallout with Dr. Carmichael's Lead, White, and Blue House Paint. Dr. Carmichael's Lead, White, and Blue House Paint, helping to defeat communism one house at a time. To hear more about Dr. Carmichael's products, tune in to Dr. Carmichael's Family Fun Time Radio Hour. Dr. Carmichael, whose number one priority is family. And now back to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. After he can't get into his home, he goes to the bank to cash a check, and they realize that the IRS has frozen all of his assets, and the bank confiscate all his credit cards, and they throw him out of the bank. And at this point, Jamie Lee Curtis is like, you know what, forget the money you owe me. I'm just going to go home. Dan Aykroyd pleads and he begs for Jamie Lee Curtis to help him. And reluctantly, she takes him home, or she's going to take him home in the cab. Then we cut to Eddie Murphy's first day of work. And Eddie Murphy walks into the building, and they all know who Eddie Murphy is right off the top of the bat. And he meets with Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici and... Uh, they try to explain what commodities are. And they explain it in a very, very childlike kind of way. 
And during this explanation, Eddie Murphy just looks square into the camera, breaking the fourth wall. It's very, very funny. Once they get done explaining what commodities are, Eddie Murphy just says, you sound like a couple of bookies to me. He just boiled it down to the essence. And once again, we see that what rich people do and what poor people do are basically the same thing, but they just have different names and some are illegal and some are not, even though they're doing the exact same thing, basically. We cut to Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis going up to her apartment. And Dan Aykroyd just goes off on her. Not off on her. He just goes off about what's going on. He thinks that Eddie Murphy is the one that's done all this. He thinks Eddie Murphy is the one that got him arrested. He thinks Eddie Murphy is the one who planted the drugs on him. He thinks Eddie Murphy is the one who arranged taking his job. He has no idea that the Dukes are behind it right now. Actually, the, only the butler at this point knows that it's the Dukes that have put everybody up to this. And Beeks. Beeks knows it too. And in this scene, we see Jamie Lee Curtis take off her top and we see her boobs. I read in an interview one time that all the horror movies she did, Halloween, Terror Train, Prom Night, she never had to get naked. But the first major motion picture that she was in, they made her take off her top. And she said, I wasn't exploited in those exploitation movies, but I was kind of exploited in a big-budget Paramount movie. We cut back to Eddie Murphy, Ralph Bellamy, and Don Amici. They're all in the room, and they're all talking about pork bellies again. And they're talking about when to sell and when not to sell. And Don Amici, and, they, and Eddie Murphy gives this big, long spiel. He, he boils it down to that they shouldn't sell until... It gets to 64, and they think, no, they're going to lose money. I, I'm honestly going to say I, I was a bit confused about all the all the trading and stuff like this in this movie. I, I don't know any of that. That is a totally different world than me. But Eddie Murphy explains in layman terms why they should hold off, and his explanation works, and they make uh, they save he saved the company a ton of money if they would have sold too soon. During this bet, Ralph Bellamy is for... Eddie Murphy making it and Dan Aykroyd going down the toilet and Don Amici is against it. Don Amici leaves his money clip on the floor trying to prove a point that Eddie Murphy is a thief, but Eddie Murphy runs down and gives it back to him. Nice character arc for this. He's, he's from the street and he could have just easily put that in his pocket, but he didn't. And once he gets it, Eddie Murphy has a thoughtful, and, and I think Eddie Murphy has figured out that it's sort of a test too. Eddie Murphy's no dummy in this movie. He's street smart. He knows what's going on. We cut to the squash club, and we see all the typical white men and white women, collars popped, pipe smoking. All the women are in tennis dresses, even though it's a squash club, or I guess it would be a squash, a squash dress. Dan Aykroyd shows up. He's looking for his friends. He needs help. He's going to fight these charges. He's not going to take this lying down, but he needs his friend's help. And every single person that he thought was a friend turned their back on him. Much like where Eddie Murphy thought all those people from the bar were his friends. No, they were just using him for his money. Now that Dan Aykroyd doesn't have any money, his friends no longer have any use for him. Be careful who you think your friends are, because they might not be. We cut to Dan Aykroyd at a pawn shop. He's got a $7,000 watch that he has to pawn for 50 bucks to Bo Diddley. 
this pawn shop scene was a bit reminiscent of the pawn shop scene from the Blues Brothers, where they're trying to buy musical instruments from Ray Charles. Dan Aykroyd is trying to sell a watch to Bo Diddley. Right before Bo Diddley gives him $50 for the watch, Dan Aykroyd sees a gun, and he says, How much for the gun? So you see that the bet is coming to fruition. Eddie Murphy is excelling as a commodities broker, and Dan Aykroyd is going slowly, slowly. He's going deeper and deeper into some sort of depression because now he's gone to buy a gun. We cut to a scene where Eddie Murphy is sitting with all the, the head brokers of the company, and Dan Aykroyd is outside where it's raining. And it's a nice, it's a nice contradiction. At the beginning of the movie, we saw Eddie Murphy out in the cold while Dan Aykroyd was nice and warm. Now it's a switch. Dan Aykroyd is out in the rain, and Eddie Murphy is in there nice and warm, chatting up his friend. We go back to Jamie Lee Curtis's place. Dan Aykroyd now has a fever of 103. While this happens, her trick shows up, and Jamie Lee Curtis blows him off to take care of Dan Aykroyd. We see the humanity in Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis believes that Dan Aykroyd is some sort of financial wizard. She doesn't, she doesn't know what's going on, but she says, if I help you, you will give me this much money in the future. While that is her initial part of helping Dan Aykroyd, you can see that she's slowly developing affection for him because she doesn't go out with this guy. She doesn't turn a trick. She stays home and takes care and mothers Dan Aykroyd. And she takes her top off again. So that's two scenes of, of Jamie Lee Curtis without her top on. And it's a sweet scene where she's taking care of him in bed. The chemistry between all the leads in this movie are great. This, the chemistry between Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy are great. Between Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis is good. The chemistry between Denholm Elliott, between Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, it's all good. So it's all great performances in this movie. And, of course, uh, Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, they both give fantastic performances. The next morning... Dan Aykroyd gets the financial section of the paper and he sees Eddie Murphy's picture in there. And now he snaps. Now he's going to take care of business. He's con he is convinced that Eddie Murphy is the one who put him in this predicament. And he is going to take care of Bennett. We cut to the Christmas party. Once again, this could be a totally Christmas movie because there's a Christmas party going on. And Dan Aykroyd is there in a filthy Santa Claus costume. I don't know why it was filthy. I don't know where he got it. I'm, I'm sure he could have rented a clean... It, just, it didn't make sense why the Santa Claus costume was filthy. Uh, anyway, it was filthy. And he's shoving food into his clothes. He shoves this giant piece of salmon into his coat. While the party is going on, we cut to Eddie Murphy. He's in the saw, And Eddie Murphy is working. He's working hard. It's Christmas Eve and he's still working. It just proves that if his character... Now that he has a job, he's going to work hard at his job. He's not just taking advantage of the fact that he was given this. He is working hard at this job. And he finds, once again, a check to Beeks. The same person that Dan Aykroyd found a check to. And he can't find any traces, and he brings it to the Duke brothers. And once again, the Duke brothers are shady, and they say, I'll take care of that. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know why, and this is a, a little flaw with the film, if they were paying this guy Beeks... Why would they why would they just not take care of that themselves? Why would they run it through first Dan Aykroyd and then Eddie Murphy just to have more eyes see that check? Just take care of that yourself. If you're doing something on the DL, the less people who know, the better. 
while Eddie Murphy is out showing the check to the Duke brothers, Dan Aykroyd goes into Eddie Murphy's office and tries to plant drugs on him because he thinks because he thinks Eddie Murphy planted drugs on him. Eddie Murphy walks in, the Duke brothers walk in, Dan Aykroyd pulls a gun, and he just goes hog wild. He's just pointing the gun, he's running away, and he just runs out of there. And Eddie Murphy starts throwing the drugs away. Except for there are a couple of joints in there. So he sticks a couple of joints. It's very, very subtle. You got it, You got to pay attention. But while he's throwing all the harder drugs away, he just uh, slips a couple of joints into his pocket. It's very, very subtle, but it's it's very, very funny. Then we go to Eddie Murphy in the bathroom where he starts smoking one of the joints. He realizes the smoke, so he stands on the toilet to blow some of the marijuana smoke into a vent. And at that moment, that's when Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici walk in. And this is a part of the movie which, uh, I guess it had to be done to move the to move the movie into the third act. But it's just, this would never, this conversation would never take place in real life. They basically just, just give exposition of all they've done. Well, here's the dollar, I bet you, saying that we could turn Dan Aykroyd into a bum and Eddie Murphy into a financial wizard. I'm going to... I guess I'm going to forgive it because the movie is so good, uh, but this little scene right there, it's just, eh, I don't know. It, it had to be said. There is no other way that Eddie Murphy would have known what was happening unless this happened so we can keep the movie going, but it's a little, you know, heavy-handed. Uh, Don Amici says, uh, Negro, in, while this, while he doesn't know that Eddie Murphy is around, he says the N-word. He flat out says the N-word. I don't want to... I don't want an N-word running our company. And it's shocking, and it was 1983, and it was used in movies more then, and um, it's just, I think it was just to reinforce how despicable. During the movie, uh, Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, you can tell that they're, that they're evil, but they may come across as two cuddly old men in certain scenes. So I think this may have been said just to, just to grind home the point that these are a couple of old racist men who are playing with other men's lives. I think that's why that word was used, just to nail that point home. After Eddie Murphy hears that, he goes rushing out to find Dan Aykroyd. He wants to tell him what's going on. And Dan Aykroyd is now blind, stinking drunk. He got his hands on something. And he's just wandering around in the rain. He gets onto a bus. He starts eating the salmon that's in his coat. It's pathetic and funny at the same time. You really, really... Dan Aykroyd does a very good job at just being pathetic, at being a man whose whole life has been turned on its ear and he doesn't know why. It doesn't take place over that long. It's like maybe two or three days. Just to see a man crash that hard in two days and a man rise that high in two days... Once again, I'm going to let it slide, but, eh, you know. Dan Aykroyd actually tries to kill himself. He takes the gun that he had, and he puts the, puts the gun up to his head, pulls the trigger, nothing happens, and he throws the gun away, and then you hear a bullet ricochet and a window break. And then after that, a dog pees on his leg, and it starts raining. He just goes, He just staggers back up to Jamie Lee Curtis's apartment. And Jamie Lee Curtis is doing something. She's decorating a tree. Once again, this could totally have been a Christmas movie. She's decorating a tree. Dan Aykroyd comes in, blows past her, and goes into the bathroom. And Eddie Murphy has been following him the whole time. And he walks up, 
and he wants to know if Dan Aykroyd lives here. Jamie Lee Curtis starts beating on the bathroom door. Eddie Murphy busts on the door. Uh, Dan Aykroyd is just taking a handful of pills, wanting to kill himself. We cut to the scene of the next day. Eddie Murphy and Jamie Lee Curtis has taken Dan Aykroyd back to his original home where Eddie Murphy is living now. Dan Aykroyd is in his original bed. He's uh, He's got his pillows. He wakes up. He sees the butler. He thinks it's all a dream. The doctor has been there. The doctor says he's okay. He's going to live. It was close. All a dream. And then he sees Eddie Murphy. And he just attacks him. He starts choking him. And uh, the butler... And Jamie Lee Curtis, they pull him, they pull him off of Eddie Murphy, and it's like it wasn't him, it was the Dukes, and then they explain to him what the Dukes did, how they bet a dollar on their lives as guinea pigs. They're watching the television, and you see Dan Aykroyd polishing his guns. He's gonna he's gonna go over there and and shoot the Duke brothers. Eddie Murphy's like, you can't do that. He's like, why not? It's like, because it's assault and battery. It's, it's, it's assault with a deadly weapon. And then the TV is on. And we see uh, Paul Gleason's character, uh, Beeks. And he is evidently in charge of the... Uh, he's in charge of the paperwork of the citrus crop. This is very, very important because people are going to buy and sell oranges, concentrated orange juice, on the New York Stock Exchange they figure out that the Duke brothers are paying Beeks to give them inside information that they can use to either buy or sell their orange juice stock. And this is going to make them very, very rich. That's where all the checks were coming. That's what the secret checks were for. They are not only to have him take care of problems, but they are, but he is giving them inside information. They spring into action. They go, the best thing to do to get back at a rich person is make them poor. They find out that Paul Gleason is taking a train into Philadelphia and he has the he has the paperwork with them and he's going to meet the Duke brothers in this in this parking garage a la Deep Throat. They concoct a plan. They're all going to get on that train and what they're going to do is they're going to switch the briefcases and they're going to get they're going to give the Duke brothers false information. So they're going to do the opposite of what they need to do when they start, uh, you know, when, the, when, the, when uh, the New York Stock Exchange opens. Paul Gleason gets on the, on the train, and there's a New Year's Eve party going on on the train. So apparently a week has gone by, and there's a New Year's Eve party. And we see Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi pops out. He's wearing a gorilla outfit. Jim Belushi, brother of John. Good to see him in this movie. It's a tiny one, but... Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Yes, it's a tiny tangent alert. It might not be a big tangent alert, but we all know that Dan Aykroyd started singing with Jim Belushi as the Blues Brothers years later after uh, John died. He also did it with John Goodman, who starred in Blues Brothers 2000. We'll talk about that movie in the future. And we're back. Not a big one, but Paul Gleason is on the train. And we see Franken and Davis from Saturday Night Live. They are driving this uh, male gorilla who's in a cage. And, okay, here's a tangent alert. Here's one. Tangent alert. 
Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. The role of Franken and Davis was originally supposed to go to Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis, who were going to play the McKenzie brothers in this movie. It fell out, so once that fell out, we got uh, Franken and Davis, because they both worked with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live. And I think it was better with Franken and Davis, because if we would have had the McKenzie brothers in there, it would have been, to me, a little bit too cartoony, because they were already established characters, and they were established weirdos and stuff like I I just think it may sound weird, but having Franken and Davis in there uh, made the movie a little more realistic. That we weren't dealing with already, you know, constructed characters that we've seen somewhere else. And it's over. And we're back. Paul Gleason is in his uh, compartment. Very, very subtle. He's reading a book for, uh, by G. Gordon Liddy. I thought that was funny. And Eddie Murphy comes in as an African exchange student. And then uh, the, the butler... Uh, Denholm Elliott comes in as an Irish priest, and then Jamie Lee Curtis comes in as a Swedish backpacker, all part of the plan. And while, when Jamie Lee Curtis comes in, she has Paul Gleason help her with her backpack, and while they do that, they switch the briefcases. And while they switch the briefcases, uh, Eddie Murphy takes the briefcase, slips out, and gives it to Dan Aykroyd. Eddie Murphy comes back into the compartment, and Dan Aykroyd comes back into the apartment. Dan Aykroyd comes back in as a Jamaican, and he has blackface on, and um, and has that has a Jamaican uh, dreadlocks. Here's my deal with that. This is the same problem I had with Doctor Detroit. Dan Aykroyd comes in as a Jamaican, and he's doing a Jamaican accent. And Dan Aykroyd can definitely do a Jamaican accent, but his character in the movie, there's no reason that he should be able to do this. He has played a uptight, straight-laced broker. To me, there's no reason he should be able to pull this accent off at all. And here's one. Here's a little one. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. This role was originally uh, presented for Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor had to bow out of the uh, out of the project and they brought in Eddie Murphy. And when Eddie Murphy brought was in, he didn't want Gene Wilder to play the part because he thought that people would just be thinking that Eddie Murphy was trying to be Richard Pryor. So this was originally a Richard Pryor Gene Wilder vehicle and as you know from silver streak there's that famous scene where gene wilder puts on blackface and pretends to be black well here in this movie a movie that was intended to be for gene wilder and richard pryor we see a scene where dan Aykroyd is doing blackface pretending to be black with eddie murphy Whew. you get all that good they try to switch the briefcases black paul gleason sees them and he pulls a gun on him and he starts marching them through the train and there's a New Year's Eve party going on. They start marching him through the train, and they march him back to the baggage compartment. And while they're marching him through the train, Jim Belushi starts talking to him, and Paul Gleason tells him, "Get lost. Who, you know, who's he to tell me that?" He follows him into the baggage compartment. Paul Gleason is going to shoot them all, and then Belushi comes in his gorilla outfit, just starts walking towards 
Paul Gleason and because he's drunk and uh, and this is what I don't understand. Paul Gleason, from all accounts, his character is a cold-blooded killer. He would do whatever he had to do, and he was going to shoot four people. I don't see why he wouldn't shoot five people. One more person to shoot, especially somebody he doesn't know, wouldn't mean anything to him. But instead of doing that, he conks him on the head. And when he conks him on the head, what he doesn't know is he's standing uh, behind him is the gorilla in the cage. When Paul Gleason bonks Jim Belushi in his gorilla outfit, the gorilla thinks Jim Belushi is a female gorilla. And so the uh, the male gorilla in the cage knocks out Paul Gleason. And what they do is they, they tie up Paul Gleason and they tape his mouth and they put him in the gorilla suit. And after they do that, Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy sort of have a sly look. And what they've done is they have they put Paul Gleason in this gorilla suit. They somehow secured the gorilla head down where he can't get it off. So now Paul Gleason is in this cage with this horny gorilla. And Franken and Davis are just looking at them. And they don't realize they are so drunk or they're so high. They don't realize that there used to be one gorilla in there, but now there's two gorillas in there. And we sort of have, the scene sort of ends with uh, Paul Gleason uh, getting monkey raped. (laughs) We cut to the underground car garage where Eddie Murphy is pretending to be Paul Gleason. He's He's in the shadows. He's smoking a cigar. The Duke brothers show up. They're supposed to pay him money. They exchange money for now the false information. So Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy and their team has given the Duke brothers false information. And the Duke brothers have given them a wad of cash. So Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy have the correct, they know what's going to happen with the citrus market. And they take their they take, they take their money, they take the money from the butler, and they take Jamie Lee Curtis's money. And they're, all, they're taking all the money that they have in the world, and they're going to use that, and they're going to try to make money on this inside information that they have and that the Duke brothers don't have. Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy take a train to New York City, and we cut to the Duke brothers, and they're looking very cocky and confident because they think they have the inside track. They tell their guy just to buy, 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 buy as much. Because from what they gathered is, they uh, the report that they gave the Duke brothers is that the winter has hurt has hurt the citrus. So citrus is going to be worth a lot of money because there's not going to be as much of it as around. So they're these this, this buy as much. And Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd show up. One of the scenes near the end of the movie, they're all on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And this is just, I, I will be honest, I have no idea. Buy, buy, sell, sell. They're just buying. It is just mass pandemonium on that floor. And while they're doing this, Dan Aykroyd, when the voiceover is sort of explaining, well, what they're doing over there is this, and what they're doing over there is this, and they can sell this, and they can sell that. And, and I just, I don't think the voiceover was needed. I think we could have just seen the pandemonium, just people, just what they do on the New York Stock Exchange. Just let them go. Just let them do what they do, and just let us let us soak it, in, soak it in. Well, trading stops, and at the end, the Duke brothers are broke. Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, and their team, they're rich. The Duke brothers, what happens is they get their seats taken away on the New York Stock Exchange. They're getting all their assets frozen. They're getting all their all their personal wealth confiscated. And while all this is happening, Ralph Bellamy has a heart attack. And somebody goes to Don Amici, your brother just had a heart attack. And Don Amici goes, fuck him. Just seeing, just seeing old Don Amici saying, fuck him. 
after he plays all these cute and cuddly grandpas, like in Harry and the Henderson and in Cocoon, just to see him, you know, fuck him. It was nice. It was nice to hear. You know what? We'll go off on one. You probably know this, but this is the final one. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. In the movie Coming to America, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy reprised their role as the Duke brothers who were now poor and living on the street. And during that movie, Eddie Murphy, playing the prince, uh, slips a ton of money to them while they're sleeping on the street. The world of coming to America and the world of, of trading places intersect. They're all in the same universe. And we're back. We cut to the last scene of the movie, and they're on some Caribbean island. Eddie Murphy has a girl. Denholm Elliott, the butler, he has a girl. Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd, they're now together on a boat. At the end, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And I think that's what you want to see in a movie. And that's Trading Places, 1983, comedy. It is a very, very funny movie. It's it's Eddie, one of Eddie Murphy's first movies. He's really good in it. Dan Aykroyd playing the snobbish guy who gets taken down a notch. He's very good. Like I said, every performance is good in this. Every performance... There's not really a standout performance, and I don't mean that. I mean, there's not anybody that really outshines somebody else. Everybody in here does an equally good job, and you enjoy seeing everybody on screen, whether they're playing a good guy or a bad guy. Trading Places, comedy classic. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I think you should check it out. Very, very funny movie. That's it. This has been another episode of the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. If you want to support this podcast, you can support me on Anchor or on my Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Scott White. Just give what you can. You can visit my website, scottyblanco.com, seeing what else I have going on. You can have my, and that's where my calendar is. If you want to see me doing stand-up, I do stand-up all over the country. Check me out, you know, and if you want me to come to your town, you can always request a comedy club in your area to do that. And that's it. We are done. This has been the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. See you next time.